for those of you who are at home, uh, this sermon is going to culminate in a time of, of uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So you may want to, if you missed earlier, you may want to get something for that, um, some crackers and some juice, uh, but we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper and what, remembering what he's done for us at the end here. So just for your information. And if you're here and you forgot, uh, one of our communion packs is out in the, the, the foyer, so you can grab that before we get going. Well, if you didn't notice by Kelly's uh, sweatshirt, tonight is the Super Bowl, and uh, you know, the goat, Tom Brady, versus the kid, and uh, you're going to have to find out who you... Uh, who you're cheering for. But at the end, someone's going to be a winner, right? They're going to get the Vince Lombardi trophy. And how long will that last through eternity? Not very long. One of the things that I believe God is doing in this pandemic, if we want to know what God is doing, I think somehow he is slowly weaning us from this earth, from this creation, from this earthly shell. God made this world in all of its beauty and all of its wonder. And it's an amazing reflection upon who he is. But it's still fallen, it's still broken. It's still even in rebellion against its creator. And our tendency is to want to hold on to it. To invest in it deeply like this is all there is. But praise God, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to redeem us and buy us back to Himself after our rebellion, but number two, to give us a greater kingdom, a greater future, a greater reality to live for. And also to remind us that ultimately this world is not our home. It is passing away. It is falling apart. And it's going to fade and fail us. But Him, His kingdom, His gospel, his salvation, that's what's worth living for. That's worth, what's worth clinging to. That's what's worth sacrificing for. And we have to put our hope in that. And so today Jesus is going to kind of address that in kind of a backward way and talking about some of the things that are going to happen before the end of all things. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to put your finger in uh, Luke chapter 21. And we'll be picking up at verse 5. But before we dig in, would you just allow me to pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes so that we can see what he has for us today. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to give us life and you came to show us that there is a greater life than what we have here on this side of heaven. And so would you give us ears to hear what you were saying to your disciples and what you're saying to us your followers, even today. We want to hear. 
We want to live in light of the truth of your message, and we want to be a part of living for eternity, both for ourselves and impacting others for that. So Lord, take your word. Do your surgical work in our hearts. and Give us grace to receive it, to respond to it rightly. Lord Jesus, our great Master and Savior, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. So again in the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. This is Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, at the temple, the place where God is supposed to dwell. And he's bringing a new covenant, if you will. The sad part is that those who've been in charge of the temple and the ministry of the living God to the people, unfortunately, have harnessed it for their own personal gain. And they don't even recognize God's sent Messiah. They can't see him. In fact, they're resisting him. And they're building their own earthly kingdom because that's all they can see. So this is the reality that Jesus is going to speak into here. So pick it up at verse 5. Because he wants to prevent this in his own followers. It says, Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, As for what you see here, the time will come when one not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So the first thing that Jesus is trying to point to is what man sets up like a building is not going to last. What man sets up is not going to last. Now this building is a second reincarnation of God's temple. Remember, it was burned down by Nebuchadnezzar and rebuilt again in uh, 516 B.C. We read about that when we were going through the book of Ezra. And it lasted, but it was pretty plain. It wasn't that opulent. Then Herod the Great came into power. And he decided he was going to do a refurbishing job with the temple. And that started in about 20 B.C. And it expanded the temple building, it expanded the temple complex, and it was amazing, at least by earthly standards. It was quite impressive, and the the disciples are impressed with it. Notice they talked about some of the, the stones. I was doing a little research. They have found stones that are one, one solid piece that are 40 feet long. And if you want to get a sense of what that means, is the end of this table all the way to the end of this little false railing thing all the way here. That's the length of that stone. 11 feet high, which would be about maybe the top of this pillar here, and 14 feet deep, each of them weighing more than a million pounds each. And that's not the largest stone's 
that were by record. That's just what they have found, because I think the, the larger ones were broken up. Josephus talks about them being about 40 cubits long or 60 feet long. Huge. So by scale, it's just like amazingly impressive. And remember, it took 46 years for this temple to be built. That's one of the reasons why these stones were so humongous. But number two, it's opulence. It was decorated with gold, white marble, cedar paneling, and rich linen tapestry. Again, the historian Josephus described it like this in his documents. The gate opening into the temple was completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had golden vines which hung grape clusters as tall as a man. It had golden doors 55 cubits high and 16 broad. Before these hung a veil of equal length a Babylonian tapestry with embroidery of blue and fine linen of scarlet also uh, and purple wrought with marvelous skill. So this is an impressive Impressive building. It is amazing. Maybe you've had a chance to maybe go overseas to go to some mighty cathedrals like a Notre Dame or something like that. I mean, it's, it's this type of a thing. And certainly this grand opulence, the majesty of this, should point to the majesty of the living God. On the other hand, it really was a monument of glorification or self-glorification to a tyrant. (laughs) Because Herod the Great was far from a godly man. And he built this, in truth, probably for his own glory than that of the glory of God. Yes, it is the temple of the Lord, but it's also being abused by its stewards for personal benefit. But can you see how it's, it's easy to kind of put your faith in something like this? Like, man, this is impressive. This is, this is amazing. It's the temple of the Lord. And it probably gave the people, the Jewish people, a great sense of civic pride and religious pride. Like, man, look at this. Look at this temple to our God. Easy to put your faith in that. You know, before the first temple was destroyed, Jeremiah the prophet confronted his people, talking about don't put your faith in the temple of the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, chapter 7, verse 4, I should say, he confronts them. He says, do not be deceived by this saving. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. His point was, don't think that God is looking to protect this building because of your ungodliness. He's not limited to this building. And Jesus says in verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This is shocking to his listeners. It'd be like, us going, someone telling us, yeah, Washington, D.C. is going to be leveled. The Capitol, Washington Monument, the White House, the Pentagon, it's going to be leveled. It's going to be ground zero. 
Perhaps it's a little bit of what many of us felt when the Twin Towers were, were attacked way back in 9-11 in uh, 2001. And Jesus is pointing to the fact that God's kingdom is different. It's not made up of a building. Realize a couple things are happening here. This is, this is what's going to happen. This is before Jesus is going to go. He's telling them that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to be entombed. He's going to rise from the dead. And he's going to go to the right hand of God the Father and wait to return. And number two, the temple will be leveled by Rome in, in 70 A.D. Not one stone will be left on another. It's going to be like it never existed. But again, what Jesus is pointing to is God is doing something different. His dwelling place is not going to be an amazing building. It's going to be within his people. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, look, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, you're the temple. He dwells in you. And by the way, that's why it matters how you handle your body, especially with sexuality, as we've talked about. He is doing something new. He's come to dwell in hearts, not in a building. And so for us, who we do enjoy a very nice building. Trust me, I know it's foibles, but there are lots of congregations that would love to have our building. But the church is not this building. It's you. It's you. And the church is not what we, I mean, his kingdom is not what we build up. It's not what we hold on to. It's not our stuff. That's not the kingdom of God. It's his people. You know, some of us are, are old enough to think about what are we going to leave our, kill, our kids when we die, right? Maybe it'll be finances. Maybe it'll be property. Maybe it'll be some heirlooms of something. I've, I don't own much. It's <laughs> of much value. I've got a couple guitars that are, are kind of nice, but, you know, how long are those going to last? No, the greater question is, what have I imparted to my kids even now for the kingdom of God? Have I imparted to them faith in Christ? And again, each child has to respond individually. But that's the legacy. That's the inheritance I want to pass on to my kids, to the next generation. Because what we build is not going to last. A Super Bowl trophy is not going to last. A building is not going to last. No. It's what Jesus builds in the hearts of men and women. And so, Jesus is open to a whole can of worms here by state, making this statement. <laughs> His disciples are shocked and so they say to him in verse 7, Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he. And the time is near. 
Do not follow them. So number two, what originates from man, especially wisdom, it proves false. What originates from man proves false. Again, this is predicated on the fact that Jesus will go to the cross, will go to the tomb, he will rise from the dead, and then go sit at the right hand of God the Father, and now we wait for him to return. The disciples don't fully see this, they haven't experienced that, but they will afterward. But as we wait for Jesus to return, and we don't know when that's going to happen, and we don't know all the circumstances that are going to bring that forward, there are those who are willing to fill in that gap with their own ideas as we wait. And this is in the category of false teachers, false Christs, and false prophets. Some will come in his name who are false teachers. And I, I kind of broke this down into three categories. False teachers, some will be heretics. They're heretics because they're going to say what is untrue in relation to the nature of who God is and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. There's a church father called Arius who spent a lot of his time trying to show that Jesus was a created being rather than one with the Father at the beginning. And that's manifested itself with a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Taze Russell. It's a heresy. It takes the mystery of God and his headship in his incarnation and comes to your own conclusions by what people can figure out in their own wisdom. So there'll be false teachers who are heretics. We're going to say something contrary to who God is and how he's revealed himself in Scripture. There are humanists, false teachers that are humanists. That is, the gospel really conforms to culture around you. You see, yeah, we've got the Scripture, but that was really written by men in that time. And it was, you know, conducive to the culture of what people understood then. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's relevant today. What is true is what I feel. What is true is, is how I see things and perceive things. But they sure cling on to Jesus is love. They cling on to Jesus' love, and it gives them permission to experience sexuality in any direction that they desire, because Jesus is love, or to think that the thought of God punishing sin is a horrible thought, because Jesus is love, God is love. What do you mean? Heretics that are humanists, or false teachers that are humanists. And last of all, what I call hedonists, false teachers that are hedonists. They would conclude with us that, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that no person comes to the Father except through him. But they believe the Christian life is living your best life now. That, in fact, your birthright is that you should have prosperity, healthy, wealthy, and wise. In fact, 
if that's not your experience, maybe there's something wrong with your faith. There's something wrong with you. Because they should, you should be experiencing heaven here on earth. Only thing I look at, though, is I look at the life of Jesus and I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, who didn't seem to experience that. That didn't seem to be their Christian experience. And they set forth a, a lifestyle, a Christian lifestyle, that seems to be contrary, especially when Jesus says, don't love this world and the things of this world. So false teachers who are hedonists. There are some that are going to be coming claiming, I am he, false messiahs or false Christs. And many people were willing to, to fill this gap, especially in the 60s A.D., when Rome was kind of cranking up the heat. In fact, a Roman emperor named Caligula wanted to put his own image in the temple. And so many of these false messiahs raised up rebels against Rome because what was happening was an affront against the living God. And probably many of us would agree also. But they were saying, I'm the Messiah that God sent. You know, that may seem like way back then, but there have been many, even in my time, who have claimed to be reincarnations of Christ. Anybody remember a man named uh, Sun Young Moon? We used to call them the Moonies. They were followers of this Korean gentleman who was very charismatic. In fact, at one point he was thought to be an evangelical until he claimed to be a reincarnation of Christ. He's famous for two things. His followers would like invade uh, airports in the 1970s. It's like you just couldn't get away from them. They wanted to pin this little, this little flower on you. And, and they were also famous for these mass weddings where Somehow the people would be paired together. You wouldn't even know them, and they'd have these mass weddings. He died in 2012. In the United States, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians um, had a small cult himself, saying, I am a reincarnation of Christ. He died in a conflict with the ATF in 1993, I believe. But here's the point. There's only one Jesus. He's not going to come back in anyone else's body. He's going to come back himself and we'll all know it. We'll all see it. We'll be talking about that a little bit more next week. But when Jesus comes back, you won't have somebody telling you, oh, you know, go down to the, the mail building. He's down there. We'll all know it. And then... The time is near. False prophets. Then who, those who say, I know when Jesus is coming back. It's been revealed to me. There were a couple false prophets named Hymenus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2.18 who said, well, the resurrection's already happened. And it put God's people into a stir, and the Apostle Paul had to address that. Those false prophets. During our own lifetime, Many, many have been predicting they know when Jesus is going to come back. One of probably uh, the most infamy, at least in my own heart and mind, because he's from the Bay Area, 
And in many ways, he was kind of in the evangelical camp, was a man named Harold Camping, who said he knew Jesus was coming back in 1994 because he figured it out from the Scripture and counting whatever he was counting. It was numerology. And then when that didn't happen, he says, oh, I, I made a mistake. He's coming back in 2005. And then when that didn't happen, he said, oh, I, I made a mistake. And I was here in, in Rochester when this happened in 2011. He's coming back. And the worst part is that people believed him, sold all their stuff, all their earthly belongings, believing that this is going to happen. And he felt no responsibility to those people. He should have shut up. He should have shut up the first time. But he didn't take seriously the scripture. Where Jesus would say, no one knows the time. Not the angels, not the Son, speaking of himself, only the Father. But Harold was smart enough to figure it out over Jesus. Here's the point, folks. False teachers, false prophets, false Christs. They're people who are going to be saying something that's in contradiction to God's Word. It may seem new and novel, and it, it, may, even, it may even fill our, our desire to have the answers, because we want to know. We want to know when Jesus is coming. We don't like living in that mystery. We don't like living in that place of not knowing. But if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, they're false prophets. They're false teachers. They're false messiahs. And there's only one. There's a reason why we call ourselves Bereans. Acts 17.11 The Apostle Paul comes to the town of Berea, and they receive the message with eagerness, is what the Scripture says. But they also looked in the Scriptures to see that these things were so. That's what we have to be, folks. Receive God's message with eagerness, but always look in God's Word to make sure it's so. Not be deceived. Jesus says, do not follow them. Do not follow them. What originates with men's wisdom is false. Jesus goes on. Verse 9. And when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said that the nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom will rise up against kingdom. What originates from this earth is a false stability. What originates from this earth is a false stability. First of all, Jesus talks about that which originates from men or government. If you look at world history from the very beginning, it is a record of one group one tribe, one nation, one empire trying to dominate another. Over and over and over again. And that doesn't change even with the coming of the Messiah. 
Again, I told you the Jews rise up when Caligula tries to put an idol of himself in the temple because the Romans are trying to dominate the Jews. But we are all hoping that some government, some form of rulership is going to bring peace and stability to the whole world. Now, there have been times where empires have brought a sort of peace, a sort of stability. The Pax Romana, Romana, the, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, communism, and even the United States in this democracy and influence throughout the world. It always seems to come at the expense of controlling others by force. And no one likes to be controlled, right? So they're looking for that moment when they can throw off the control of others who live miles and miles away. On the other hand, we do want to have that peace and stability. And in moments where there are war, there is conflict, we're hoping that someone will bring that. And some are even willing to capitulate to an aggressor. You know, before World War II, there was a prime minister named Chamberlain who was willing to put up with what Hitler was doing because he wanted peace in his time. And everyone was still licking their wounds from World War I. The problem is not systems or government. And I think some are better than others. Honestly, that's my opinion. But the problem is the human heart, not the system. Failure to love our neighbor as ourself. Failure to honor, obey, and love God. That's the problem. It's a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over again, and it just creates more strife, more conflict, more wars. And we wonder, I think, sometimes when things are just out of control, like a World War II, or maybe even during the Cold War, is God going to come? Is Jesus going to come right now and put an end to all this strife? Honestly, I think it's God allowing us to see that we can't save ourselves. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. And if there is good that comes, it's usually come because of the influence of Christ in his kingdom. But we cannot save ourselves. There's no form of government that's going to overcome the sinfulness of the heart It's only going to be what Christ brings. So, what originates from this earth, from a man's side. Then there's the other side, from nature, or from creation. Look at verse 11. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from the heaven. In my lifetime, I was born in December of 1964, I just listed these things that I've seen happen on the world stage. Hurricanes, volcanoes, drought, famine, floods, tornadoes, tsunamis, landslides, Ebola, earthquakes, COVID-19, global warming. All those things I've seen. Nature and upheaval. And then in the heavens, we've gotten much more contemplative about that since we've gone to space. But comets, eclipses, planets aligning. This last Christmas time we had, uh, I think, 
Jupiter and, and Saturn coming together, thinking that that might be in line with what the wise men saw years ago. And we wonder, is there an asteroid that's going to come and wipe us out like the dinosaurs? What will we do? We send a nuke up there to, to get rid of it. But these things, we're looking to the heavens kind of going, what, what, is God trying to show us something through what's happening in the heavens? And we look at nature and wonder. Is the, is the end coming? Is Jesus going to come back before the earth is destroyed or before it destroys us? Right? Somehow creation itself knows that this is not the way things are supposed to be. Let me just read this commentary that the Apostle Paul makes in his letter to the Romans, verses 19 through 22. It says, For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not of its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation knows there's something wrong. This is not the way it should be. And again, while creation remains good, I was driving home yesterday and saw uh, the sun shining in a cloud they call sun dogs. I think you know what those are. It's like a it's like a rainbow, right? And it was beautiful. It was a reminder of God's amazing artistry and even His promise. But it's still fallen, and it will not be perfect until there's a new heaven and a new earth, which Jesus will bring. We cannot put our faith in what originates from the earth, whether it's man-made or whether it's from nature. So Jesus continues on in verse 12 through 17. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. And they will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Jesus is trying to show us that earthly allegiances are oftentimes at odds with the kingdom of God. When Jesus calls people to follow him in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verse 23, he says, if anyone's going to come after me, then deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Put your own desires on the cross and follow me. I'm calling you to follow me as your number one allegiance. I have to be number one in your life. But you know what? The world doesn't take kindly to that. It doesn't like it. It resents it. And so Jesus is saying, be prepared for this world to push back on you if I'm number one. 
if I'm your first allegiance. Be prepared for it to push back on you. Literally. Literally. Before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, which is also written by the same author, Jesus' Jewish disciples make known his resurrection, his salvation to the Jewish community around them in Jerusalem. And some respond. But the religious leaders, you know what they do? They lock them up. They persecute them. They throw them in prison. They threaten them. They command them to be silent. Of course, they don't stop telling people about Jesus, but that's what happens. And then you get a little farther on when Saul becomes Paul, and Paul goes to synagogues in Asia Minor. And you know what they do? They pursue him because they don't like what he has to say. Even as he goes to other people, the Gentiles especially, to spread the gospel. By the way, that's what happens to the Bereans. Jesus, I mean, Paul leaves Thessalonica and goes to Berea. And the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with eagerness and looked in the scriptures to see that these things were so. But that's what's going on. And appearing before kings, Jesus himself, he appears before Herod Agrippa, the son of Herod the Great. Not Herod Agrippa, but Herod Antipas. And then before a governor, Pilate. Paul will appear before Felix, Festus, both governors of Rome, then Agrippa, another son of Herod the Great, and ultimately Caesar himself. But persecution is going to happen because this world doesn't like to not be number one. And it's happening today. It's happening today. In Nigeria, you've got Boko Haram who are harassing Christians. In India, you've got Hindus who are harassing Christians. In Korea, China, Iran, you've got the government persecuting Christians. In Afghanistan, you've got Al-Qaeda putting Christians to death. And all the privileges and rights that we experience as Americans, that's the exception, folks, more than the rule of most of our brothers and sisters. That's the exception. But Jesus is saying there's a necessity for this, though. In verse 13, he says, And so you will bear testimony to me. You'll be my witnesses. You'll be my martyrs. Literally, it says, it's necessary for you to be witnesses. See, what Jesus came to do was not for just one little exclusive group. Not just for Americans. Not just for Jews, even. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's called us to make that known. And sometimes, we're not as faithful with that mandate as as we ought to be. And so what God allows is a little persecution. Again, going back to the book of Acts, you know when the gospel really spreads to the Roman world? When persecution comes. It starts going to Asia Minor. And then throughout the world. And then they start telling that the, this message has turned the world upside down. Praise God. 
but sometimes it takes some persecution. If you want to know where the gospel is spreading today, it's in places where there is persecution, where following Jesus is a life and death decision. But people are receiving that message eagerly, eagerly. And here's my question. Because I think many of us are asking the question with the new administration where things are going, is persecution going to come to us? Are people going to tell us to shut up about the gospel, about Jesus, about the word of God? It may come. I'm not saying it will. I'm just telling you it may come. But if it comes, are you going to be more concerned about preserving your rights or are you going to be more concerned about spreading the gospel? That's my question. Are we more concerned about people coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and being saved for eternity than we are our rights? Because this is not going to last, folks. It's not going to last. The United States of America is not going into eternity. There are Americans who are going into eternity, but not the nation. Are we more concerned about his kingdom than our kingdom? There's a promise within this admonishment, though, too. He says in verse 14, Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves, for I will give you words of wisdom, words and wisdom, that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. It's the Deacon Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin sharing with them the gospel, and that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. They can't contradict him. They can't, they can't refute him. All they can do is stone him. And in that moment, he enters into glory. It's Martin Luther standing before the Diet of Arms, saying, here I stand, I can do no other. Standing on the word of God. When we stand up for him, he gives us what we need. We don't need to rehearse. We don't need to practice. None of your adversaries will be able to contradict you. And again, looking to the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, who was a fisherman most of his life, in Acts chapter 4, he stands before the religious elite, the teachers of the law, the experts of his time, and he shares about who Jesus is from the scriptures and from their experience. And they can't do anything except tell him to shut up. Don't do this. Don't talk, talk about this or we're going to get you. Through the Holy Spirit, God gave Peter the words. Peter, who was a fisherman, I think sometimes we think, ah, I'm not articulate enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not educated enough. Do not be worried. If you're in that position, God is going to give you the words if you are faithful to him and you're dwelling and allowing his Holy Spirit to speak through you. You don't have to figure it out. He has promised to give you the words. He promised to be with you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, there's a painful cost along the way too, and that's betrayal. 
Verse 16, and you'll be betrayed by even parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends. They'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Again, Jesus calls for first allegiance. To be number one above all, even family. Jesus says earlier in this same gospel, chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And perhaps it's a painful reality, a painful thought even, because in our family, this is where we expect to expect nurture, love, acceptance. But there might be betrayal. And the family is not God. And the family cannot save. And it can't set itself over allegiance to the Savior. And even Jesus experienced this himself. You know, our sister Emily, who serves in the Mideast, one of her close contacts is, is a gentleman. who put his, He was a Muslim, and he put his faith in Christ. And you know what happened to him? His brothers stoned him. His own flesh and blood stoned him. I don't know if you know that or not. That's about all I'm going to tell you. He lived. But his brother said, if you ever come back to the town, we'll kill you. We'll kill you. The allegiance can't be to the family. The family is not God, and the family does not save. This world resents when Jesus is our first allegiance. And because they resent him, they resent us. Everyone will hate you because of me. Here's the irony of the gospel. It's when we're in the most earthly, perilous, vulnerable position, we're actually in the safest place ever. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 18, But not a hair of your head will perish. He just said, some of you will get killed. But not a hair in your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. What is from Christ provides the greatest hope and the greatest stability. Again, how how do we mesh these two thoughts together? Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair in your head will perish. Again, Jesus comes to bring a better, a more lasting kingdom. Again, back to what Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9. In verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their very self or their very soul? Jesus says, I'm bringing a different kingdom something that will last. And we who know the story, Jesus will be executed on a cross at the age 33 and a half or so. But he rises from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in him, even though they die, yet shall they live. Again, 
my friends, what I think Jesus, what God is doing from us, doing for us during this pandemic is He's slowly weaning us from earth. Because we want to put our hope, our security, and invest in that. But it's failing us. And it will fail us. But Jesus and His kingdom will not. That's what I want you to go home with today. Because in a moment here, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus dies. But He doesn't do it as a victim. He doesn't do it as a casualty. He does it to save us and to give us life. And then He conquers that foe that we can't conquer. In death. He rises from the dead. And He's coming back. And by the way, this is only part one of what Jesus has to say. We're going to come back next week and look at what He has to say to us next week. But Jesus is slowly, sovereignly weaning us from earth. Will we allow him to do that? Will we start to treasure more and more his kingdom and what he has for us? So with that, I want to...